According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me as we turn in our Bibles this morning to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21. Last week we covered quite a bit of ground and uh, hope to do so again today, starting in verse 13. 13, 14, 15, 16. I think that's maybe as far as we get. And if we do get to 16, then we're really going to hit the brakes because there's a lot of material there that we need to spend some time with. The first verse 13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. That's a, kind of a scary verse. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we uh, thank you for being so faithful day by day, moment by moment. We call upon you and you answer. We rejoice in your faithfulness to hear our prayers. But today we have a verse that shows us a time that you won't hear our prayers. So we want to learn what this is about. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so yeah, the idea here about crying out to the Lord and Him not answering us, that's a kind of a scary verse because we like prayer, we want to talk to our Father, we want to call out in a time of need. But there are occasions when God chooses to close His ears, when God chooses to not listen to us uh, because of our sin, because of our idolatry, because of other circumstances. And uh, there's some that are faster than others, <laughs> we might say. And uh, this is one of those. I think any carnality, of course, leaves us with an obstacle between us and, and the Lord. And so we need to confess our sins, and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But then there are other mindsets, mental attitudes that hinder prayer as well, mental attitudes that cause a rift. And uh, this is one of these issues here. I think lack of forgiveness is one, clearly, that we've seen in other studies in the past. Uh, but this one here, where we are not gracious towards the poor, when the poor are crying out, and we are actively in hostility. We are closing our ears to them. And so uh, this is what we're looking at here in verse 13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor. And the vocabulary throughout this verse is interesting. It's not just um, you know, a basic word for crying, and it's not just a basic word for shutting your ears. It's, it's pretty intense in, in uh, the, the expressions that are here. So, um, you know, this is almost comical when we talk about putting your fingers in your ears and doing the la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you kind of a thing. And, and that plays out in uh, cartoons and comedies and, and whatever else. But that's what this verse is talking about because the poor is crying out and they're screaming. They're in agony as they're crying out. And, um, and the person that doesn't want to hear it is, is working very hard to make sure their ear is, uh, is very shut. And so the consequence then being that uh, God Himself hands us over to some discipline and He, he uh, shows us what it's like to, to uh, not hear for the cry of help. And uh, that's the consequence there. Alright, so let me uh, start the slideshow here. We're looking at if I have the right slide there. That was last week when we looked at the punished scoffer. 
from verse 11. Here we go. Point 10. God's wisdom details his expectations for gracious treatment of the poor. God's wisdom details his expectations for gracious treatment of the poor. Ultimately expressed when Jesus Christ himself became poor for our sake. Ultimately expressed when Jesus Christ himself became poor for our sake. And I enjoy, of course, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and the great uh, blessing that we have to understand <laughs> what, what exactly Jesus Christ did when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What uh, Did he humble himself when he left the ivory palaces of heaven and, uh, and experienced the, the, the life that we live in these things? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that is such a marvelous truth, and we can appreciate this, and the blessings of the kenosis, the humility that he expressed, whereby you and I are also urged to humble ourselves, to have the mind in ourselves that he also had. So we're uh, called upon as well to, uh, to make many rich. Although we are poor, we make many rich in uh, the blessings we have here in the church age. But back to Proverbs 21.13. In so many places in the Old Testament, the New Testament alike, wisdom literature, the Bible gives us God's expectations for how we should love our neighbor as ourselves, how we should provide for one another, there's a number of contexts for this, and we want to we be biblical and we don't want to abuse what the Bible says so that we don't um, make the misapplication to our harm, to our detriment, and to the detriment of the body of Christ. And this is the thing. So Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always, and you've got to have the priority right to recognize what the spiritual work assignment is at this moment, see, so I'm kind of taking things a little out of order here on this slide, but in Matthew 26, 11, Jesus says, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. <laughs> so there's a contrast there. And this is as he's getting ready to go to the cross. This is uh, shortly before his arrest and his, and his crucifixion. And uh, in fact, the night before. And uh, there's some grumbling that's going on here. And uh, the woman with the alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, she poured it on his head as he reclined at the uh, table. And that seems nice, it seems appropriate, and he praises this woman for it. But uh, some of the disciples start to grumble. The disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Okay, yeah, it might have been. <laughs> You know, might have been, but it wasn't. Instead, it was uh, her blessing to Jesus on this uh, on this occasion, and so um, we want to we want to have God's wisdom with respect to the appropriate use of the wealth that He provides. And when He does provide, He provides a little, or He provides a lot, or somewhere in between. And everything that He provides, we want to have wisdom in what we do, in terms of our own use in terms of our own needs, in terms of our enjoyment, in terms of, of uh, the fun that He expects us to have because He gives us all things richly to enjoy. There's perspectives on money. Money is not wrong. 
and wealth is not wrong, and profit is not bad. And, and uh, we're a little hampered these days because of uh, the culture and some of the attacks that come against the Word of God. So this perfume might have been sold for a high price, the money might have been given to the poor, but it wasn't. It was given to Jesus. Okay, And so we realize there's multiple uses for, fun, for finances, multiple uses for money. And, and assistance to the, you know, charity and assistance to, uh, to the uh, less fortunate, that's appropriate. But that's not the only use for money. There's also the support of the local church. There's, there's uh, the, the giving of your funds to promote, uh, to, to, to feed a pastor and his family, to keep a building operating, to, to run a local church and the needs there. That's also appropriate. So we have, and then of course, you know, other people like to eat as well. There's lots of things you can do with your money. And uh, one of the most dangerous things is to listen to the grumblers, <laughs> like these guys. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Why do you bother the woman? She has done a good deed to me. And when you're critical of how other people are spending their money, what business is it of yours? All right? Just deal with yourself in, uh, in these things. And if it was wasteful, fine. It was her waste. If it was worship, great for her. And, uh, and, and boo for you for not identifying her love for Jesus and the support that she was doing there. And uh, beyond supporting the Lord, what about just the money you're spending in your own enjoyment? He gives us all things to enjoy, we're told. And then he goes on to say, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The priority is, and he's getting ready to go to the cross. So recognize, what is the season? What is the day? What is the moment? What is the opportunity? And because uh, there's always going to be needs. We are never going to run out of, 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 of homeless, of, of poor people. Of, uh, that, that's, that's never going away. Even if the utopian uh, people in government say that we can have a war on poverty and we can end poverty and we can have a world of universal wealth and prosperity and joy and they, they try to sell it like you know socialism and communism is going to make everybody wealthy and happy and it's just a lie. The poor you will have with you always. All right, but you will not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. She had a perspective. Not only was she blessing him, not only was she loving him and, and expressing her wealth and her gift to the Lord, she was accepting what the disciples themselves were still in denial. They're still living in denial that he's not going to die. He's not going to go to the cross. He's been telling them for months now that he's going to do it. She did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. I think we're guilty of not obeying this verse and we're guilty of not spotlighting this woman and her perspective on finances and spiritual ministry. So we'll remedy that today by teaching this. <laughs> All right. Um, it's not on the screen also. I'm going to get to these verses on the screen, but while it's on my mind, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and uh, when we're talking about the uh, wealth that's provided, let me just back up as well, because he gives us these things to enjoy. To enjoy. And now I'm not seeing it. He supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
There it is, 1 Timothy 6.17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So it's not a pride issue. It can become one, and, and people succumb to that, and that's the snare. So you've got to avoid that and not be full of yourself if God has blessed you with an abundance, but be humble. And don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think that now that you have some, uh, some, some extra, you have some abundance, that now all your problems are done. That you'll never have any problems ever again because now money can solve everything and, and you have it. No. It's the uncertainty of riches. And it could be here today and gone tomorrow. But fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things. And then here's the words, to enjoy it's not wrong to enjoy it. It's not wrong to, to give God the glory and to, to reap what He's given you and to, and to uh, give Him all the glory for what He's provided. See, you can grumble, grumble, and, you know, your people can grumble, grumble and say, well, you know, um, why does a pastor have such a rich, fancy car? Why does he, you know, if he, if he had a Hyundai, if he had a real humble car, he could, he could save that extra money and give it to the poor. You know, he could give it to the church. He could... He could um, walk or take public transportation. Instead he has this pretty purple Dodge Charger that goes 100 miles an hour. And uh, that just seems extravagant. That seems uh, a waste. It seems like the pastor is not setting the right example when we have so many hungry people in the world and, and all the rest. So this is, uh, this is what happens. No, he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And, uh, and believe me, if, if, if he would have richly supplied more I'd have gotten the the demon scat pack package with uh, the Hellcat. Uh, I'm, I'm dangerous enough with uh, <laughs> 303 horsepower. Imagine 700 horsepower. How scary would that be? But notice, all things to enjoy. And then in addition to the secular life enjoyment, you have the spiritual enjoyment. Instruct them to, go, to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. So now you can have temporal life enjoyment and spiritual life enjoyment because you can become the conduit to bless fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you share, look what you're doing, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So, uh, you know, uh, Lydia's nice in this life, but I'm not taking Lydia to heaven. The, the, the car stays here when I go to heaven. And uh, there's life indeed when we depart this physical, physical life and enter into glory. Anyway, these, uh, these are the verses here that I think about when I think about money. Now, when I think about the, the treatment of the poor, the attitude that we have to care for the poor, yes, the Bible gives us a lot of expectations. These are God's expectations for how uh, we can approach the poor. And the first thing we learn in our verse this morning is don't close your ears. <laughs> All right. Don't shut your ear. Do not shut your ear. That's, that's a hard heart. That's a dangerous attitude in the Old Testament, New Testament alike. That shutting your ear, deliberately not listening, choosing to ignore the cry of the poor. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you know, empty your wallet and you give everybody who asks anything, everything you've got, but you don't shut your ear to the poor. You listen. You, you consider 
you, you pray and say, is this my assignment? What is the circumstance of the poor? What is the application to be made? Because the Bible also talks about the divine consequences for the sluggard, the divine consequences for the, the glutton and the drunkard and the other discipline. That this person may be under discipline. At which point I want to be cooperating with God, not not uh, bailing out the sinner for his sin. I want to be addressing the real issues. Why, why are they poor? What does he need to get back on his feet? What really helps him? And it may not be. Money may be the worst thing. Money may be the last thing. It doesn't help. And uh, so we have to know how these things function. But don't shut your ear. Don't shut your ear. We're going to see some more about this in uh, Proverbs 31. Before you get to the virtuous woman paragraph, You've got the wisdom that Lemuel's mother is giving him for how to be a, a good king. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. I'll just start at the top of the chapter here. This is Proverbs 31. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. Traditionally, this is Solomon and Bathsheba, but there's other understandings of that as well. And I haven't, honestly, I haven't made up my mind what I think about it. But um, what, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed, and pervert the rights of the afflicted. So, uh, good warning, you know, women get you in trouble, alcohol gets you in trouble, you want to be a good king, watch out for those, those snares. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Well, that's an interesting prescription, and um, this king's mom, uh, I kind of like her. <laughs> All right. Verse 7, let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Well now wait a minute, is that really good advice? Just get drunk and forget all your problems? What is this passage really saying? Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. And this is the, the one who is vested in this office. This is the king's duty. All right, He should be under this. Uh, open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. And so when you ask yourself, what is the role of a king? What is the role of government? What is the role of a president or a governor or a mayor? What is the function of the, of the temporal life authority that's over us? They've got a variety of applications to, to make as far as bearing the sword and protecting the nation and leading. But here, the social justice aspect of it related to the unfortunate and the afflicted and needy. So there we go. Proverbs did not start this off though, it was actually given as a facet of Mosaic law, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, and there's parallel accounts too in Deuteronomy and other places. But Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. I just want you to see though, these expectations for how Israel sets up their government, these are important for us to recognize because Israel was a theocracy. We're not a theocracy. The United States of America is a, is a Gentile nation. Uh, we can pattern our laws after the example that Israel was given up to a point, right? We, uh, we're not going to set up a tabernacle or a temple. We're not a holy priesthood. We don't have 
the Shekinah glory or anything like that. We're not, we're not the covenant nation. But we can pattern our laws. So murder and stealing and, and uh, these things, we, obviously those are crimes and they're sins. And we want to have laws that reflect the, the uh, laws that God put into place for Israel. So speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And so it starts with family morality. It starts with children to their parents. It starts with a culture that's going to be worshiping God and not idols. Then when you sacrifice, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. Let me get down through some of this. All right, verse 9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You say, well, what's this about? Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger, I am the Lord your God. All right, these two verses, verses 9 and 10, not uh, to the very corners of your field. So you have a square plot of land, you reap in a, in a circular pattern, and what have you just done? You've left the corners unreaped. You've left the corners and all the, the, uh, the uh, harvest is still there. As well as the circle that you did you make one sweep through, you don't make a second sweep, a third sweep, you don't go get the gleanings and see what you missed. You have one harvest, one, one uh, reaping of the, of the circular pattern in your plot of land because the part that's left over, those are called the gleanings. So the corners have the full harvest and then the circle has the, uh, the gleanings. And that's not for you. It's for the poor, the stranger, the needy, and the stranger. You shall leave them for the needy and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so this then becomes a, a benefit. This becomes a provision for, uh, in the culture, in the society, for the poor, the needy. They can go to the gleanings. This is what Ruth was doing when she was going out to the gleanings. And, and Boaz uh, gave instructions to you know, make sure to throw a little bit more that way. And uh, the, the pattern that's there. Also notice they're not just sitting at home collecting a, a welfare check, <laughs> right? If, if they want to eat, they've got to go get it. They're going to go work for it. And uh, the work is available. There's so many other provisions that are there because it's connected, it's at the local level, it's connected to that clan, that tribe, the, the, the people that live in that area. And they know the, the poor and needy of the land and they're, they're involved in their lives. There's other provision that's made there with respect to that. And uh, I think this is a marvelous pattern that we need to, we need to recognize that um, the, the, the assistance of people in, in the culture and the society can't be separated from work. All right, uh, Leviticus 25. And uh, really it's the whole chapter, but a couple of key verses in this. There's paragraph headings in verse 25 and in verse 35 here. But if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. 
And so this is a provision in Israel. Remember when the land was apportioned on the basis of their tribe and then the tribe had subdivisions based on their clans and their families. And uh, recognize this was their inheritance from the Lord. And it was never permanently lost, that there would be a jubilee year where the, the, the things would be reset and restored to the families. But in the meantime, there would be the provision for redemption, that a family member, a, a near kinsman could redeem a plot of land and could assist in their family to get back on their feet. So if he has to sell a part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his me- the means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. And so this is the provision. And this is, this is God in Mosaic Law making uh, you know, recognizing that, that um, business has cycles, that there's profit, there's loss, there's, there's good years and there's bad years, and there's tough seasons, and there's, there's, um, there's poor choices and consequences that you learn from. And so you don't repeat those poor choices. And then there's other, other recognition. Notice, this man who becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property. So you have cash assets and you have land assets and you have animal assets and you have you know, a, a variety of resources within your overall uh, portfolio. And selling part of your property, that's an option. If you have to liquidate and, uh, and, and to, to stay fluent, things like that. All right. Um, and of course the Jubilee year is where these things would revert. Get down to verse uh, 35. In case the countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. So now, uh, you know, in the ancient world, of course, the option was slavery. That uh, you just, the man had nothing left, just himself, his body. Well, his bodily labor became the, the property of the person that took custody of him. Within the covenant nation of Israel, however, there was grace that was provided for these, uh, these countrymen. And, and the word for countrymen is the word, uh, is the Hebrew word for brother. To love your neighbor as yourself, but then the brother is closer than a neighbor. And uh, this is the issue here. All right. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God and that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. And so you're not going to profit off of his misfortune. You're going to help him get it on his feet, and whatever you lend him, if when he's able to pay you back, he'll pay you back. But it's not with interest, and it's not, you're not going to profit by, uh, by doing this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of, the Canaan, of, of Canaan to be your God. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. You shall not rule over him with severity, but revere your God. 
And then there's the restriction, the uh, passage there on slavery. All right, we'll have more to say on that when we get into some slavery concepts in Colossians, because we have uh, 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 wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters coming up in Colossians chapter three. Um, all right, so we've looked at Proverbs, we looked at Leviticus, we already read Matthew twenty six eleven. How about First John three? In the church age. See, it's not just Israel. You might say, well, that's Israel, of course. Israel was a covenant nation. Israel uh, had clans and families and tribes and a nation. We don't have any of that in the New Testament. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, Gentile believers in a Gentile nation. Quite right. But we're also members of the royal family of God. We are born-again believers in the, in the family of Jesus Christ, and so our accountability is more strict. Our expectations are higher with respect to the family of God. Keep in mind, those verses we just looked at in the Old Testament, the backdrop for the graciousness and generosity was the fact that all of Israel was a slave nation that was redeemed by God and was given freedom as a gift of God's grace. And so they, they could function with that, with that camaraderie, that sense of identification, that sense of belonging that every Jewish believer, every Jewish person, whether they were saved or not, every Jewish person was uh, an object of God's grace having been redeemed from Egypt. So they, de- they dealt with each other accordingly. Now, what's our equivalent? Every one of us in the body of Christ is a sinner saved by grace. Every single one of us is somebody who used to be an unbeliever, a sinner going to hell. But Jesus Christ saved us. By faith in Christ, we now have eternal life. So we also are a redeemed people. You see why it's so parallel? We are a redeemed people. And we should look to one another, our brothers and our sisters, and if we see a brother in need, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. See, that's the issue. Again, you see your brother in need, you, you need to identify it, you need to see it for what it is, pray about it, see if you're the one that, that, that Jesus has assigned to, to provide that need or somebody else is assigned to provide that need, or if um, the pastor and the deacons need to get involved because there's some discipline in, in the picture that needs to be addressed and then the need can be supplied. There's a variety of things at work. The last thing you need to do, though, is to close your heart against your brother, okay? Closing your heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? So little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. How sad is it when you see your brother in need and you say, you know, go and be filled, but you don't give him what he needs to be filled. See, faith without works is dead, and you know, we got the book of James that talks about this, and other passages. Don't just love with word. Say, I love you, brother. Praying for you. You know, where's the deeds that go with that? Yeah, here's a coat. Here's a here's a second coat. Here's a meal. Here's the extra mile. All right. Anyway, there's principles there. We've we've dealt with some of these things before. I'm not going to give an exhaustive biblical economics on this, but stay tuned because I think we're going to get some of this in Genesis. I think we're going to get some of this as we break down the laws of divine establishment, God's plan for personal volition, for marriage, for family, for nations, and uh, these principles as they get applied there. 
Let's take a look at our next collective Proverbs. Let's talk about bribery in verse 14. <laughs> right. These two verses are interesting side by side because you've got the beggar, the guy who needs money, and, and you're closing your heart and you don't want to give it to him. But then you've got the, uh, now you've got on the other kind of side of things, um, you've got money, and maybe this is why you weren't gracious to the poor is because you've got to save your money to, uh, to buy your political influence. You've got you to save your money to, uh, to uh, appease the, uh, the Lord that you've offended. A gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe in the bosom strong wrath. And so uh, we have uh, kind of a financial verse this way that's interesting. All right, let's look at verse 14 and bring up point 11. Bribery works. Bribery works well in this present cosmos, but it is an offense against God's essence and attributes of justice. It's a principle we've actually taught before back in chapter 17. Uh, we've, we've encountered the bribery elements in the book of Proverbs prior to chapter 21. Um, so it'll be a bit of a review when we look at, at uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18 here. It does work. The fact that it works, though, doesn't make it right. And I think this is a, a curious thing. It's, um, is, is somebody angry with you? Well, cash helps. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and depending. And, 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 uh, these are given in such a generic way. We don't know why the person's angry. Maybe they're angry for right reasons. Maybe they're angry for wrong reasons. It doesn't say. But a gift in secret can, uh, can, can dampen that, can subdue that, can put it to sleep. Okay? A gift in secret. Now, just because it's secret doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes we read that into that too. Sometimes it's very gracious, a private matter, whereby you know, we always want to resolve things as, as low-key as we can if, with just one or two, deal with it there. We don't have to tell it to the whole church. So a gift in secret, if it really is a gift, then uh, hey, we can make it up to you and we can be done with this. And you know what? Love covers a multitude of sins and here we go. And uh, we get past it and there we are. But what if it's great anger? What if it's strong wrath? Now it's really out of control. All right, now it may have to be more than a gift. Now it has to be, uh, and I think the vocabulary here, we, we're accelerating, increasing in scope and scale from a gift to a bribe. And in the bosom, in the bosom, what's that idiom about? Well, that gets even more. That's, <laughs> you know, there's some things you do in secret. And then, you know, the, I think the idiom uh, expresses, um, it's, it's pretty personal, okay? You don't just reach into somebody else's shirt <laughs> without them knowing about it or without them asking you to or without, um, <laughs> that's kind of a personal thing, right? And uh, chances are the, the people you're comfortable reaching into their shirt is, is a small list in, uh, in you know, your, your spouse, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and there you go. Anyway, don't be silly with that. But we have seen previous uh, doctrines related to this. Uh, back in chapter 17, a bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. You think, hey, it works. Okay. And, uh, and 
just as a facet of business and dealing with, uh, dealing with um, uh, people in, in secular life and, and whatnot. If, um, if you have a business thing going on and, and the customer is not happy, what's the business owner going to do to make the customer happy? Okay? As, uh, if, uh, you know, I filed a, <laughs> we had an issue with uh, Sharon's salad, the last Pluckers order that I made. And, uh, and so I got on my app and I filled out the feedback form. And I said, hey, supposed to be no, no cabbage. My wife's allergic to cabbage. And uh, anyway, I didn't know if the feedback form did anything. I never used the app like that before. But lo and behold, sure as you know, I filled this thing out. And, uh, and I get a phone call the next day. And the manager was responding to my feedback and, and apologized for the for the uh, and realize you know because I use the word allergy maybe there's a health you know and so anyway they they uh, they're sending us a twenty five dollar gift card they're they're uh, they want to have good customer relations with with their uh, customers well, thank you you know a bribe is a charm and, the, and where it works all right I'm I'm thankful for that anyway um, it's 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 not just for unbelievers it's not just uh, it's not always wrong when uh, when a gift is offered, you know, privately, quietly, and uh, just as a way to grease the skids and and uh, improve the attitude. Other times, it's a flat-out bribe, okay, and it perverts justice. That's the issue. All right, uh, eighteen sixteen. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. You know, you can you can get connections this way, and you can join certain um, social circles, and you can spread a little money around with a donation to this, or you can take part in a in a fundraiser. And there's other things you can do where uh, different uh, financial contributions will open doors and bring you into circles of greater. Um, associations and uh, come before great men. And, and maybe you have good reasons for doing that. It doesn't always have to be nefarious or wrong. It does work. But when you're perverting justice, if you expect that that influence is then going to, uh, going to pervert a judicial proceeding or some kind of other uh, proceeding, then that's the issue that displeases the God of justice. A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. And that's the problem. When you are turning God's attribute of justice into a perversion, that's the sin. That's more than just, you know, making friends by means of mammon. That's more than just functioning uh, uh, along the lines of the sons of darkness, as Jesus said. You've got to be shrewd. Shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves, we're told. Exodus 23, 8. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. So now it's one thing, and, in, and this is where in Texas and other states where your, your uh, judges are, are elected um, and, and run for election and they take donations, contributions, and, and they, they, they raise funds for their election, so, I mean, so it's one thing to, to support a candidate because you like them, um, to support a candidate. Uh, I've gotten to know, in recent months, I've gotten to know um, 
Texas Supreme Court justice, and, and, and I count that as an honor, and, and I know his wife better than I know him, but um, it's, it's, it's good. You know, they're good people, they're Christians, they're saved. Um, he, he rules according to biblical norms and standards. He's, he's a solid constitutionalist, great guy. And uh, I would have no qualms against um, supporting him for election or things like that, but that's one thing. Now, if I was in legal trouble and I have a case coming before his court, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that, well, now I can boost a little bit extra beyond what I was going to do normally anyway, and uh, hopefully, you know, he'll rule in my favor, even though I know I'm guilty of sin and I should go to prison. But I'm going to bribe him to, 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 over, you know, to ignore the law, to wink at my crime or, and let me go free. Well, that's just perversion. That's a perversion of justice. And, and hopefully we can see the difference on that. Anyway, don't take a bribe to blind the clear-sighted. It should be obvious. And uh, the bribery then is, is, is wrong. Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not distort judge, uh, justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. So the partiality is where people get treated differently. And, uh, you know, one person, uh, you know, for the same crime, one person gets a, uh, a 15 year sentence and somebody else gets a little slap on the wrist, a little, you know, probation and a fee and, and uh, no jail time. You think, well, why is that? How come this guy has to go to prison for 15 years and that guy gets, uh, gets probation and no jail time? What's going on? Well, that's called partiality. That's uh, showing favoritism, having different standards for different people. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of righteous. So really this comes down to the nature of of God Himself. And if if God was as as perverted as so many humans are, then uh, who needs the cross to save anybody, right? But the fact is, God is a God of justice and the wages of sin is death. And every sinner deserves the lake of fire. And so without partiality, what does God have to do? God has to send His Son to pay the price. God has to send His Son to accept the guilt of our sin. That's the, the, if God wasn't a God of justice, then He wouldn't send His Son. But He did, because He is. These things are fundamental to uh, the Scriptures and, and, and God's character in so many ways. So justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. And it's, uh, it's curious, the different criteria by which God determines that a people group no longer enjoys the blessings of the land that He had previously given them. And when He decides to take a land and give it to a different people group because nations rise and nations fall. And uh, not every people group has a nation some people groups used to have a nation and no longer. There's a difference between a people group and a nation. All right. Justice is one of the standards by which, or lack of justice is a, is a standard, a criteria by which a people group can lose the enjoyment of their land. Deuteronomy 27, 25. When all the blessings were being recited and all the cursings were being recited, here's one of the cursed recitations. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person 
and all the people shall say, Amen. You know they're innocent, and yet you bribe the judge to pronounce them guilty, to strike them down. When you manipulate the legal system to accomplish your murder, there's a curse. So there's the issue of bribery. Let's go back to Proverbs 21. So we've had closing your ear to the cry of the poor. We've had bribery. And now we have justice. The exercise of justice is a joy for the righteous, but it is a terror to the workers of iniquity. It is a terror to the workers of iniquity. This is a nice follow-up to verse 14 because we've been talking about justice issues already anyway with respect to bribery. Bribery perverts justice. But now here is the exercise of justice. When you see justice at work, when you see a fair ruling, when you see law and order, when you see a society functioning the way it's designed to function, well, that's great. When you see human government being exercised according to the principles that God assigned, and you you can resonate with that because you also are trying to function in your personal life the way that, that the Word of God assigns, then um, that's, that's the best of both worlds right there. My, my spiritual life is on track, my government life is on track, my political life is on track, things are great. So the, the exercise of justice is a joy for the righteous. We can like that. But it's terror to the workers of iniquity. Terror to the workers of iniquity. So well, who wouldn't like righteous government? The unrighteous. <laughs> who would object to a constitution that's written based upon biblical norms and standards? Unbelievers, the unrighteous, the wicked. Not only do they object, they actively hate it. They fear it. They cringe when divine righteousness is expressed in temporal life, in secular life. They tell you, you keep that private, you keep that to yourself. They don't want your biblical norms to be spoken in the public square because they only want atheism spoken in the public square. They only want secular humanism spoken. You've got to keep that spiritual stuff out of my, I don't, I don't want to hear it. See. That's what the unbeliever says because they're, they're darkness. They hate the light. And when the light exposes their darkness, they hate it, they fear it, they dread it. This passage talks about the terror. The, the terror that they're under. It's kind of an interesting phrase. It's, it's really, it's a remarkable we don't usually, when we think about terror or terrorism, you know, think about what terrorizes the unrighteous, the workers of iniquity. So there's some neat things we've got to see with respect to this. So what do we talk about when we talk about the exercise of justice, the doing of justice? It's not just justice as a concept. It's not an abstract attribute of God or justice in the, in the theoretical. It's actually the, the justice in the execution of it, in the, in the expression of it, in public life. The exercise of justice is when God's essence is reflected in public life. 
This is the doing of justice, the exercising of justice. You remember uh, we talked about the different words for creation in Genesis 1. We have bara and asa, and bara is the, the creation, ex nihilo, the divine creation that only God can do. But asa is the verb of doing or making, and it's the verb of when, when and, and that's something that people can do, not just God. Uh, people can lasa. You can do things, you can make things, you can fashion things. And so in the doing of justice, this is the verb lasa, it's the verb to do, the doers of justice, the ones that are constantly doing justice. And so the doing of justice, the exercise of justice, is when the abstract element of God's own nature, God's essence, is, re- is reflected in public life. And we can see it. And this is, this is true um, temporal life, laws of divine establishment, justice. Okay? And I'm, I'm cautious because normally I cringe whenever people put an adjective in front of justice. You know, because they want to talk about social justice. They want to talk about um, racial justice. They want to talk about gender justice. Or they've got all these things. And they're, they're buzzwords and they're, they're manipulation tactics. And, uh, and, and, and none of them are biblical because they're all being promoted by the anti-biblical crowd and, um, for, for their different reasons. And, and the fundamentally it's, it's satanic philosophy that underlies all of that. But true justice is when our spiritual life impacts our temporal life. That's what this whole uh, segment of Proverbs is all about. From chapter 10 to chapter 24 it is personal and public wisdom. It is whereby we are living, we are living our personal lives by the wisdom of God's word, and it affects our public life. We have a public impact based on God's wisdom, and it transforms a culture. How can it not benefit a society when you have multiple believers that are living by divine norms and standards? And so our personal wisdom is reflected. In, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our states, in our, in our nations. And so when God's essence is reflected in public life, we see it for what it is. This is a joy for believers. It is a terror to those still under eternal condemnation. Every time an unbeliever sees divine justice in this world, he's reminded that divine justice is on the way. That there is a great day coming. There is a great white throne. Now when that great white throne is convened, those unbelievers are going to stand before the, the, their, uh, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and they will bend the knee and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then those unbelievers are going to be thrown in the lake of fire for all eternity. So judgment is on the way. All right. How far we get with this? We'll save the angel stuff for next week. Um, Deuteronomy, um, yeah, the exercise of justice. Deuteronomy one seventeen. We had a concept similar to this in Leviticus earlier, but you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. It shouldn't matter to you if it's, you know, a, a homeless person that with not a penny to his name or whether it's a multi-billionaire with all the money and all the lawyers and all the fancy, none of that. Justice is justice no matter who is standing before the judge. 
no partiality. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. See, as soon as you start showing partiality, that means that you're looking at, at people. You're looking at human beings. Just like in the angelic conflict when we forget that the struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. Same concept. You, you've taken your eyes off the spiritual realities. You're looking at people. Don't fear man. The judgment is God's. It's God's judgment. God is the one that's going to hand down the ruling. You are the tool in God's hands. If you're a king, if you're a prince, if you're a judge, whatever capacity you're in, you're there because God put you there. You are His servant. You are His minister. God put you there for that reason. The Supreme Court Justice I know, he, this is, we've talked about it. He, these were His very words. He knows that He is in office by the grace of God and that He serves at God's good pleasure. And I appreciate that. That's it's a biblical recognition of, of, uh, of, of any man that's in holding public office. The judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me and I will hear it. <laughs> now that's, we can't do that in, we're not a theocracy, okay? But we can still pray about it, we can still search the scriptures, we can still, um, you know, seek uh, in all our ways, acknowledge Him so He will direct our paths. The, the, the theocracy of Israel was unique in the fact that they could go uh, to their high priest who had the Urim and the Thummim. They could inquire of the Lord. They had a variety of prophets who had access, direct verbal access to God, who could inquire of the Lord and get a verbal reply back. Um, judges today in America can't do that. <laughs> okay, It'd be nice if they could though. Let, our, let the courts uh, inquire of the Lord and say you know, the, these votes seem rigged. <laughs> What's happening here with these machines? Alright, and the Lord would say, of course they're rigged. How dumb do you think I am? Alright, that's Deuteronomy 117. Second Chronicles. How often do we get to Chronicles? Not often enough. Recounting how faithful God has been in the history of Israel. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. There were far more judges than we realize, far more than are named in the book of Judges. City by city. He said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you are not, you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. If God has put you in office and you are representing Him and you're going to make Him party to the, to the bribery, He's not playing. He's not doing that. He's, not, he's having no part in that. Alright, well we'll pick up here next week because Romans 13 Romans 13 may take center stage here after January 20th. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. All right? And so whichever candidate is, uh, is inaugurated on January 20th, I must be in subjection. Until then, I'm in subjection to the 
the man we elected four years ago. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. This is going to come up as well in Colossians because of the, um, the wives being subjection to your husband's imperative. Subjection is not, um, is not uh, something to be feared. It's not something to, to, uh, to resist. In fact, the opposite of subjection is resisting, whoever resists authority. So be in re- a subjection and do not resist authority. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. But now take that verse, put it back in Proverbs, where they're living in terror. They are in terror of God's justice. Why are they in terror of God's justice? Because the workers of iniquity are going to be objects of His wrath. Anyway, government is a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid. Be very afraid, right? Just as Proverbs 21 tells you to. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, but it is a minister of God, an avenger, right? An avenger. Hollywood makes billions of dollars on these avenger movies, okay? I like them. Comic book movies, superheroes. But here's the real avenger. The avenger who's also the redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is also the avenger. Same Hebrew word, the goel. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Alright, so the exercise of justice. When government is working well, we're thrilled. When government is not working well, oh, when the wicked rule, the righteous we uh, we groan. We, uh, we we we're still in subjection, but it's not fun. It's it's something to grieve over, to weep over, to pray for, to to uh, to plea to the God of mercy. Because uh, He's given us uh, a wicked ruler. Why has He given us a wicked ruler? When the wicked when the wicked rule. All right, pick up here next week, Lord willing, in rapture pending. We have this week and next week, by the way. And then, um, and then we're going to have a bit of a break. So stay tuned. Watch your emails and uh, stay tuned uh, in the church bulletin for the notice on upcoming Wednesday mornings that will be suspended. So Father, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We rejoice in the book of Proverbs, Father, and how faithful it is. Open our eyes to your truth. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.